0: Let's our party all the way. Let's have a big dash all the me, Let's have Welcome to What's Left in Albany. This program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding tri-city area and region, featuring discussions with leaders of communities or organizations to discuss themselves, local issues, and or their projects in an effort to get the full picture of what's going on. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, promoting the build-out of a solidarity economy and Delegate of Democracy, waging my one-man clandestine insurgency against confusion and our post-liberal status quo, as we cannot hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have in the city, we are going to find whatever's left. And with that, I begin the show, back after another month, though usually I haven't been arranging guests, I'm just going to read off news stories of various types though of course i could have a guest on for one particular topic but uh, that will have to wait as you know it folks i do not recommend taking on too many projects at once you gotta know your limits and though you also sometimes have opportunities you can't say no to so at the moment i'm basically doing two activist projects which really slows down the production of one versus the other i'm a union officer now uh at least for the time being So um, this episode, I'm going to tackle two topics with some fun stuff uh, first, or at least fun for me. I find it interesting as an architecture nerd, energy and whatever. Um, As usual, I read um, things from the Albany Business Review or the Times Union. Usually, you know, when you want to understand the economic conditions, our class position, um, and how that affects things, you know, you start with the money. And well, if you can follow what's going on with money, then maybe we can have a better understanding of what's really going on. And not maybe you obviously care about social issues, but not be see them as the be-all, end-all. Of course, because because then you take for granted the economic situation of capitalism, of you know a you know wage slavery, of imperialism, uh, how the global economy, there's the global bureaucracy, you know all of these things. That uh, could be discussed more often, but is only um, discussed as far as I'm concerned in left-wing circles, which I take part in, Um, I'd like to bring to a wider audience. So, but first, totally independent of any kind of political discussion, perhaps, but I thought it was an interesting headline, at least for me, so I'm going to read it out uh, from Albany Business Review. Albany Engineering acquires hydroelectric plant from Mohawk Fine Papers. So, you know, I'm green. I like green energy, clean energy. It's, it's interesting. I see now advertising. You know, it's, it always makes me very suspicious, very cringy when I see advertising or advertisements for things that I would normally think are things I care about. But then when advertising starts propagating it, I'm like, well, now it's like taken away from me. It's like, this isn't mine anymore now it's now it's in the hands of people with money people who want to advertise and and ask like oh don't you don't you like green energy so you're for this hydroelectric plant right it's gonna it's gonna flood you know hundreds of acres or this or destroy communities it could be that kind of dam but it's still green energy so you're for it right right and that's kind of what's done with these large power line projects which are about getting uh you know the quebec has a surplus of hydroelectric energy because they've built lots of big dams And it's all about kind of getting that energy down to New York City and us, you know, selling it to us, of course, at a premium. But you have to cut down a lot of trees and bushwhack through the mountains and and destroy a lot of environment to get that power here. Obviously, well, not obviously, but to be actually sustainable, the the power should be made around here as much as possible. Our energy needs should be met locally, but otherwise because we have lots of rivers and streams to use. We won't have a three gorges dam style project, but a bunch of smaller ones like this one, maybe points to that. I, I'm, I'm just curious about it. So I have not read this yet. I'm going in cold. So Albany engineering corp has acquired the fourth branch hydroelectric plant on the Mohawk river in Waterford from Mohawk fine papers for about a little less than 4 million. So this is one of the dams that is at the, confluence of Mohawk and Hudson. Uh, The deal, which closed March 24th, gives Albany Engineering ownership of two dams, an island, more than 20 acres of property, and a 3.3 megawatt plant the company designed and constructed in 1987. So this is not a particularly old dam either, or hydroelectric plant. Albany Engineering, at least a hundred, almost 99-year-old designer, builder, owner, and operator of hydroelectric facilities, now owns five hydro plants in the region with facilities on the kinderhook creek as well as the hoosick the hudson and mohawk sport a canadian power company with was the most recent company to run the fourth branch plant which operated through a ground lease with mohawk fine papers as the 35-year ground lease expired in march the fourth gen manufacturer of envelopes greeting cards and book covers obtained ownership of the power plant why would they my first assumption was they built it to power their factory. I'm not sure if that's the case. Because we don't take power directly from the plant and hydro is not our ball game. it made sense to sell it to the guy who built it. I see. So it's going back into the hands. Or rather, they built it, so, and now they own some plants. So it's basically they're collecting them. They're, they're kind of getting them back. Albany Engineering Chairman Jim Bessa, Sr., approached Mohawk several months ago to see if they could work out a deal. Does it say how the paper company got the plant? Why would they? How? Would, why would they own it? Maybe it got passed them to them. Anyway, this is the end of the article. Anyway, quoting this gym guy, uh, it went through several hands over the years, but it came back full circle to our engineering company about 35 years after we built it. It was a good fit. We try to keep all of our plants located in a narrow radius, which make them easier to manage. I can appreciate that. Keep it local. Keep it regional. Bioregional, regional something like that. Okay. On to the main event, which concerns the inclusionary zoning law in Albany. Uh, this came up originally when I was involved with the rezoning effort. How many years ago was it? Six? Probably eight. It was longer ago. So let's start with the start, which goes back to March of last year. When it was introduced from the Albany Business Review, anyway, Albany Councilman change zoning to require more affordable apartments. New apartment complexes and mixed use developments in Albany would be required to make more units affordable to city residents under legislation proposed by a member of the Common Council. This is Alfredo Barain, who wants to expand the city's, quote unquote, inclusionary zoning ordinance to apply to new residential and commercial developments within 20 or more units, so only 20 and above, instead of the 50-unit threshold that was established five years ago. So the original one, 50 units and above. Bahrain also wants to increase the portion of total units that must be affordable from 18% uh, up to 18% instead of five. You know, this is why it was such a minimum before, which was like you need at least 50 units, which would be like, what, three projects in Albany? And they only were required to have 5% of them be affordable, which is defined as at least like, like if you have minimum, not minimum, median income, which at least in Albany is 40,000. Though when it comes to certain grants and things, it's the regional median income, which is of course much higher, like 50 to 55,000 because it's, you're including Saratoga. The existing law requires those units to be affordable to those who earn up to the full amount of the city's median household income. Now, of course, if you are in the bottom half, crap out of luck. Uh, We're seeing a lot of great new projects coming to life, said, But unfortunately, the majority of the full market rate apartments are just out of the reach of most residents. By increasing the requirement to have housing that's affordable, it makes it accessible, which is the other kind of word. You could say affordable housing or accessible housing. Because accessible, to me, means... You're on minimum wage and you can afford it. Because what about the people on minimum wage? What about the people making a minimum income? Where are they supposed to live? Slum slum Lord stock, I guess. The market provides, as it said. Only doesn't. Numerous market rate apartments have been built from the ground up or renovated in older buildings in recent years in Albany, with many more in the construction pipeline or up for review. A side note, this is sort of can be, you can thank the, rezoning for doing that because it did open up a lot of avenues for doing building more the growing inventory has come as housing advocates have made strides to help those who can't afford the rising rents or have disputes with landlords nearly half of the tenants in albany spend more than 30 percent of their income on rent and a quarter spend more than half half their income that's a quarter of them that's the bottom quarter basically the poor the working class according to figures provided by citizen action and that was back in 2019. But you can also find these numbers in not only the census, but then the between census, there's community surveys. And those are pretty good places to get data to. Last summer, Albany became the first municipality in New York to approve a good cause eviction law that prohibits rent increases of more than 5% annually when used to circumvent election, eviction laws. It also provides other legal protections. So that's pretty notable. The law which also was opposed by many landlords who say it makes it even harder to own and manage properties is being challenged in court. Well, I'm very much just like the owner who gets sick when their workers unionize and they're like, well, I'm doubt, and they sell it to their workers. Well, I'd like to see more of that then. If you don't want to be a landlord anymore, sell it to your tenants. Do rent to own. It's And you only have to hold out for a few more years if it's so hard. Or by heart, it's like, well, it's so hard for me to make a return. It's so hard for me to double the amount of money I put in by doing very little work. Unless they're doing all the renovating themselves, which, you know, people like my father did. But they, you know, we never went above, t- I mean, two buildings. So we hope to further, uh let's see, this is... So they're challenging it. Well, uh, this is the good. This is still a good cause we're talking about. So while the mayor signed the good cause eviction law and supports incentives to create affordable housing, what kind of incentives? You know, give, good, guess, guess as good as mine. She has concerns about the legislation as currently drafted by Bahrain. Of course, Uh we hope to work further with the council to alleviate these those concerns, according to a statement provided by her chief of staff. Bahrain, who chairs the council's Planning and Land Use Committee, said his proposal will be discussed during a meeting March 9th. This is last year. So far, 15 apartment buildings in Albany must comply with the Inclusionary Zoning Ordinance, which was approved back in 2017. So that was either a year or so after the rezoning itself. Those 15 buildings have 115,060 apartments, including... 77 that were subjected to the ordinance. So we got, you know, 1,500 apartments, about 80 were actually, you know, if you had mean income, you could afford them. And that's of new housing stock. Now, as of February 1st, just three of these buildings were completed. The one is 760 Broadway, 15 Sheridan, and one Steuben. This is according to the list. Plans for others were approved or under review, or the project is under construction. So, you know, there's a lot more happening in the pipeline, as it's called. That's from last year. So here's an update. Um, This is the middle act, Act 2, February of this year. So much closer. And what was so after, you know, it takes about a full year for a law to be introduced or an ordinance uh, by the council. And about a whole year before it really, like, gets to vote, at least it takes a year. Uh, That's if you're fast. But so it did. And then the mayor... Uh, vetoed it. She vetoed it because she says it would discourage new development. So I guess her discussion was not very fruitful. So I'm reading this article also from the Albany Business Review. These are written and filed by Michael DeMassi. So she vetoed an ordinance that was strongly supported by the Common Council requiring developers of new apartments to set aside more units for people earning less than the area median income. The veto issued February 14th. Was that um, Valentine's Day? maybe that's the 15th, wasn't a surprise because she hand made it clear she opposed the law before the council approved it 14-zip. The question now is whether the mayor, or Democrat, as if that frickin' matters, can convince enough members of the all-Democrat council to not override her veto. Isn't it great being in a one-party state? Councilman Alfredo Bahrain, who sponsored the law, said the council could vote to override as early as fe- February 20th. I'm very appreciative of the time that the administration and capitalized Albany have given to this, Bahrain said. When we knew we couldn't come to an agreement, we left the table in a very respectful manner. We're going to let democracy play its course. So this is his way of saying, well, we knew we had the votes by the time we were negotiating with the mayor, so we're just going to push through. Because Capitalize Albany, literally holding to its name, wants, you know, serves as capital ownerships. Uh, interest. So anyway, in her veto message, Sheehan repeated many of her previous arguments, telling the council that, well, wow, she supports the creation of more affordable housing. The new law would place, quote unquote, insurmountable burdens on new development and shift more projects to neighboring cities and towns. Now, folks, there's a lot of things in America that create insurmountable burdens to uh, affordable housing. Refer to other episodes of the Three Lefts uh, for those uh, when I cover housing issues and urbanism as a whole. Well, let's see if I can summarize some. Uh, well, let's see. There's monopolies of construction. You know, there's a the construction industry which is insanely consolidated. The flows of material, the um, outdated and untechnologically adept um, ways we have materials and construction techniques. I think I can summarize it by repeating something I covered last night, which was that after America became a developed its trade deficit, meaning it uh, exports it imports more than it exports, this started in 6972. Uh, we shifted from manufacturing and stuff to, or technology shifted from things like rockets and factories to technology, uh, information technology. So, of course, we have technological development, but what kind? Well, there's the kind where you have built better building materials, cheaper, faster, better, or you just make better computers. And so I have this laptop in front of me. I have the tech behind me. I have the smartphone in my pocket. So we all have these things. These are great. I like them, more or less. But... It is a specific economic choice to focus on information technologies because that's where the money went. because like, well, we're not going to make money exporting anymore now that Germany and Japan can make better cars than us again since they rebuilt after we bombed the bejesus out of them. And we seem to can't do that again now. Uh, <laughs> it's not a strategy. Back to the article. The law she wrote will ultimately lead, to, ultimately lead to fewer housing units being built at a time when the state is mandating that we grow our housing stock. The, the state's mandating it, and we will ensure that what few units are built in our city will be heavily subsidized. Well, if they're how are they mandating? Well, they're mandating the market to uh, capitalists to build more housing. That's that doesn't sound right. What is she talking about? <laughs> uh and it's it's a it's similar logic to we can't raise taxes people will move away uh we can't make things in america it's too expensive and no one can afford it well the, obviously these are circular arguments because you know if we all make more and we all have better cheaper housing we'll obviously have more wealth to do things with gdp or otherwise and it will ensure that few units are built in our city will be heavily subsidized. Low-income supportive unit housing further concentrated in our lowest-income neighborhoods. I'm not seeing a downside to that. Um, well, that's, wait, it ensures that the few units that are built will be basically non-market, she means. It's because <laughs> I, I don't want to jump ahead to my conclusions, which I've come to over years of dedicated research and uh, and what have you, and self-education. But otherwise, she's basically saying, you know, it'll have to be government housing. It'll have to be non-market housing. And that's somehow a bad thing. Oh, people won't be able to profit from collecting rent. Okay. What does a worker care? What does a middle class person care who wants to own a home? What do they care? So not hearing an argument about that. She's arguing from the perspective of the developers. The new law would update the inclusionary zoning requirement that's been in effect since 2017. I know no, these are these articles are somewhat redundant because they're, you know, talking about the same thing from months apart. Under the new law, the income thresholds would be based on the area median income as determined by HUD uh, in order to be consistent with the definition used in other government housing programs. The new law creates a staggered system that would require more apartments set aside and apply to smaller smaller developments you know 20 units instead of 50 as, as the threshold so and they kind of maybe because it's different writers they they phrase things differently uh, for instance each new development with 20 to 49 residential units must sell or rent at least seven percent of the units at amounts affordable to people earning up to 60 percent of the area median income um, which is 35,000 or something or 32. Which is what I make, and I've doubled my income over the last year. But I'm lucky, <laughs> really lucky, because that 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 was not the case the last ten years. That income threshold, okay, is forty four thousand. Wait, so median income has increased in Albany? Last time I looked at it, it was forty thousand. Um, but so it's saying the income threshold is forty four thousand five hundred, and it's fifty thousand for two, or you know fifty thousand and eight hundred for two fifty seven thousand for three sixty three thousand for four and so on hud adjusts the amounts annually around june 1st according to Faye andrews commissioner of neighborhood and community services was that at hud or the city the law only uh will only apply to new permit applications not developments under construction okay <laughs> that was an open question in the article from the times union which i will now oh no um the next one, which also said it's not clear if it will be grandfathered. But obviously, they, I don't think they would be. And wait, so is this the same person? It's the same person. He forgot what he wrote a month ago. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. So now, now we uh, skip ahead to um, basically two weeks ago. Uh, same same article, same writer. I am mean, rather same publisher, Albany Business Review. Albany Council overrides mayor's veto, enacting new rules for developers. We get this. Commercial real estate developers in the city of Albany will have to comply with a new, more restrictive – see, the phrase it as restrictive – affordable housing ordinance now that the Albany Common Council has voted to override Mayor Kathy Sheehan's veto. Now, I did ask the um, executive director of Albany Tenants United, and he'll, he can give the full like, – because they, they were there at all of these meetings to give uh, a voice to tenants and working people. So the council voted 12 to 2 on Monday night in favor of the override. Two votes more than needed, according to Councilman Bahrain, who sponsored the legislation. The two no votes were cast by Hyde Clark and Deborah Zammer, who represent the 12th and 14th wards, respectively. Now, why they switched their votes against the veto, I don't know. Maybe they like the mayor more than they like Bahrain. Who knows? She had vetoed the ordinance twice. But the vast majority of the 15-member All-Democrat Council wasn't persuaded by arguments from her or several developers that the new requirements would make it unaffordable to build new market-rate apartments in the city. And, of course, they do not include any quotes from uh, tenants' rights activists. Residents and others have urged the council to provide affordable, quality units in newly built market-rate apartment complexes outside of Albany's historically red-lined neighborhoods. She and Chief of Staff... David Gallen, because all these projects are not in the wet redlined neighborhoods. That's something to point out. What projects and housing is occurring in the redlined black neighborhoods? Well, that's the Narn Market housing. Habitat for Humanity, um, Housing Visions, which is this nonprofit from Syracuse, and they're building, they built a good portion of the units in Sheridan Hollow, Habitat's filling in the rest, um, and then there's stuff here and there in South Bend and whatnot. Not much happening in uh, West End. Uh, we are disappointed. Okay, so here is the... But they do include the statement from the mayor, of course, uh, or at least from her chief of staff, who is David Gallon. Her former chief of staff is now like a county legislator or is running for such. So we are disappointed the council has moved forward with flawed legislation that will cut the number of new housing units across Albany in half and hurt our tax base. Now, of course, they're talking like Republicans here as far as like, you know, you, you do a regulation to so that big money actually has to spend some of it towards pe- working people. And this is obviously bad. This is terrible. They talk like Republicans. Let's see. All to create the same number of inclusionary housing units that would have been built without this legislation. Plus, residents in our formerly redlined neighborhoods will continue to bear the burdens of concentrated poverty. We will continue to work. with... What are any? Get around for a moment. What are any of these developments doing to alleviate concentrated poverty? All of the rents for these—these these are one bedrooms for twelve hundred a month. Like, how is this? Any of it have to do anything with alleviating concentrated poverty it is so sickening. I'm ang- I'm always angry when listening to the drivel from the mayor's office. Now they can be somewhat like reasonable sounding, but then there's when when you propose the reasonable. And by the way, this reform itself, and I'll go into how this is also a fig leaf reform when it comes down to it. You know, you got to get like yeah, 50 units out of un- thousands and thousands. When we need thousands of affordable units, we have still 10,000 vacant properties. But of course, it's a matter of where the money comes from. There's always money for market rate housing, well, at least when there's demand and there's demand because of job market trends. I can go into that too. So anyway, finishing the, the paragraph. We will continue to work with our local and state partners to find viable solutions to attract more affordable housing without sending all new market rate housing to the suburbs. Well, eventually the suburbs will run out of room. I mean, unless they densify, in which case, fine. I guess we have a few more cities around here. Can you imagine Latham with uh, sidewalks? (laughs) Let's see. The ratio increases in tandem with the number of units. The highest amount is 13% of units for new developments with 70 so so this is the compromise made okay that um it's not just you build up more than 20 units now you're going to give was it, 16% it's not even like a quarter of them 16% um now it's like it's uh 13% if you build more than 76 units Which, again, is still very paltry. The ordinance takes effect immediately, but doesn't apply to projects that have already been approved. Okay, so I must have been reading something else where it's like, it's not known if this will... Oh, okay. It wasn't immediately clear whether the new requirements will apply to projects currently under review. Pretty odd. A word on inclusionary zoning. So I have in front of me a sort of um, research brief from Urban Institute. Called inclusionary zoning, what does the research tell us about the effectiveness of local action? As if this is the only kind of local action, of course, but this is the local action that capitalist local governments have done, which is all of them, for the most part, with some exceptions, I think. So they go through state and local trends. I'm not reading it all off, but I will include a link in the show notes. Uh, Research on impacts, general effectiveness of inclusionary zoning laws, I'm going to skip to the conclusion. So how effective is inclusionary zoning and improving economic opportunity? That is the goal, apparently, opportunity. Now, of course, opportunity doesn't mean results. Obviously, as a commie leftist, I actually care about results and do are people actually better off, you know, uh, stuff like that. Uh, you know, it's like you can have the opportunity at, at The Good Life, but it's like, well, it's up to you. Well, I mean, obviously, we're assuming people are going to do their best. Uh, or at least they can contribute or want to do that. Has it effective at is it effective at reducing racial disparities? and and the paper also points out research gaps because there are many because you're kind of again relying on market rate stuff. Let's see. Market type also plays a so this is what it usually comes down to when a lot of the studying these housing problems is that because every local market is different, it's just there's always this it depends. It depends. Like So when the mayor says this is going to drop, like they're going to drop us. They're going to go to the suburbs. I mean, that's what the developers are telling us. But again, developers, you got to think of them like Trump. They're going to play us versus Del Mar. They want to play Bethlehem versus Latham. They want to play off us versus Troy versus Schenectady versus Buffalo. It's, it's all Hunger Games to them, and it's all about maximizing their bottom line. So, here's a conclusion. Quick read. In many communities, IZ, which is inclusionary zoning, has provided affordable housing to low-income families and provided them with more access to economic opportunity. Because, uh, however, concerns of the potential private market impacts of these laws have led to several states to preempt IZ policies, like they rescind them or they cut them. You know, they cut them in half. They dilute them. And, of course, it's hard to measure the effectiveness of a program that's had its kneecaps knocked out. Um, or you make it down to a 5% threat, like, oh, 5% of the units uh, with after a 50-unit threshold. Yeah, that's not going to be really effective. So existing research points to the benefits of IZ and its ability to create affordable housing, encourage integration, and improve e- equity. As policymakers consider IZ as a tool to increase affordable housing, additional research should be conducted on how to make them these policies more effective, as well as widely applicable. So generally, let me let me break it down to you know where 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 where's my, where's my position on housing policy? And I think I've gone through this maybe uh, a number of episodes of the Three Left Show. It's all about non-market housing. Now, a great thing about the term non-market housing is there's a lot of different categories, subcategories. So yeah, it can mean government housing. It can also mean nonprofit built housing. Churches can build housing, anything under that umbrella, as well as co-ops, cooperatives, community organizations. As long as there's not a return on investment slash, you know, we need to double the amount. Because once the loan and the initial cost of the building is paid off, the rent stays the same. And that's essentially it. With market rate housing, the, the rents have to rise every year to keep up with costs because it's like there's not like labor it has to be put in, I mean, a minimum amount needs, but some, some landlords don't put in any labor. I just saw on Albany Reddit slash Reddit, a uh, TikTok meme. Of course, all TikToks are memes, but it was a TikToker who lives at Harmony Hills. I think in Coho's and he's basically showing off all of the nasty things in this apartment. It's a luxury apartments, but really luxury apartments is just another way of saying apartments. And, uh, you know, there's a pool that's been closed for years. Like, they never, you know, it wasn't up to code. He uh, shows off the uh, grungy ceiling tiles in the hallway where there are leaks and, uh, and other such things. So non-market housing is the only, um, at least as far as the local policy thing, is what matters. Like Vienna, Austria is the kind of usual model of this. 60% of the housing in Vienna is non-market. And it keeps rents low. It means a working class person can basically live wherever they want. And it also means people do not care about where they live or what part of town they live in or whatever because it is all pretty much the same. And it's all good quality. It's all really nice. It's a beautiful city and a wonderful tourist destination I hope to get to. Um, I want to see the flak towers that are still there. Anyway. Um, and there's palaces, of course, and imperial money was the base of all of it. But it had lefties in charge for the longest time, and certain cities in Austria have covered have lefties again. But non-market housing—I mean, the, the main trend in the last seventy years was: oh no, we need more market-rate housing, less non-market. You know, we're not going to build government housing; people hate it, um, or whatever. Well, it was never well-funded to begin with. Got to point that out. The or rather, it was funded at the begin with, but then main, there was no money for maintenance, so of course it fell apart. Or if, like, the jobs are still, like, there's no jobs and people are st- just, you know, dirt poor. What does it matter whether the building's nice? It still takes income slash wealth to build community. So where am I going with this? So that's, I'm not going to, I don't need to expand on that anywhere. Um, check out the housing episodes of The Three Left Show. That's why I did it. So you have t- two hours at a time of me talking about all the policies all at once so here is a transition to kind of the last topic but I want to talk downtown here still from the Albany business review they review the businesses businesses what pays for things right at the moment and it's interesting to kind of see the um so I'm, I'm on two sides of things now or I've so i have, I'm a union officer so I'm dealing with the an organization that can spend money on things because of member dues and it's a quite a good amount of money I mean, it's more than what, I've been an activist for 12 years, and our budgets for an event or whatever are never more than a few hundred, and, and if and if we fundraise a few hundred, that's good too, but, but with membership, with actual due-paying members organization, you can fund a lot of stuff. Problem is with unions, since the 30s or 40s, there's all these laws and court decisions hemorrhaging, what we can spend money on, so versus that, versus the... The base that funded the music festival that I volunteered with. Again, I wasn't. I was paid in pizza and a T-shirt. I get a stipend from the union as as an officer. Um. So there's like this opulence, so to speak, of having an actual budget versus when you're doing things on a shoestring. You make the most of everything. You actually are really efficient with what you're spending on. It's like, okay, we're only going to get three signs because that's the minimum that we can, you know, we need. We're not going to do like we're not going to spend money for convenience' sake. The, the music festival, its base of support wasn't member-based. You know, ticket sales weren't going to pay for everything. The base were the the businesses of Lark Street. It was not the bid itself, but it was the businesses of Lark Street, small business owners, also known as petit Bourgeois. So, like, when it comes to music festivals and the art scene, it's like they're funded by, you know, small business, Petite Bourgeois class. Talk about it economically, economic class-wise. While a workers' organization is funded by dues, but the law basically says you can only spend like 30, this is CSEA anyway, 30% can be spent on members. Like the, if we throw events, gifts, whatever, um, the rest has to be on union business because the union's purpose is just the contract. And that's the only thing we're allowed to really allow by law to focus on, which is why the union movement is really anemic. You know, it's why it's it's uh, siloed. Um, but just, just to see that, like, you know, the... I found one, like when I'm working with anarchists, the, uh, or, or just grassroots stuff that's really grassroots and, you know, it's, oh, it's not business union. It's not corrupt. It's not entrenched. It doesn't have these entrenched, you know, fuddy duddies. Um, old, old ideas or whatever entrenched labor aristocracy is the term from Marxism. But at the same time, it's like we're not funded by the people. Workers union, you know, unions are funded by the people, but then they're like, they can only spend on one thing. They're not. They can't spend on fun too much. Um, so anyway, downtown Albany crowds are different now. Here's how businesses are adapting. So this is just a kind of about the downtown bid kind of scene. Some downtown Albany stores are done waiting for offices to fill up again, and the strategy is paying off. So they're actually, you know, not just state workers. What happens if the state crashes? What if? What if the employment figures? I mean, state employment has been cut over and over. Like I've been interviewing with units uh, as a state worker now that you know had 15 people, 20 people, and now they have five because it's just since the 09 recession, they basically haven't been allowed to replace any worker who left, retired, whatever, whether they quit or not. So one example is the Four Orange General Store, which used to be on Delaware, but they moved downtown, and the Vandy Shop, who both adapted to new patterns and extended their hours. After seeing an uptick in downtown business and surveying customers. Yes, too many businesses think that they're just surveying state workers. So they basically keep state worker hours and they're not open past 5, 5.30 even. I mean, the banks all close like at 5 at most. Some close at 4. Like, well, my hours are 9 to 5. Well, what am I supposed to do? Or, I mean, well, I mean, they're open while I'm working. <laughs> at least you know, shift a few hours, right? Anyway. So, uh, Shiloh Bull owner of Fort Orange, which carries products from local makers like home goods, gifts, stationery, jewelry, you know, home crafts said the store at Four Twelve Broadway has seen a 14% increase in transactions over the late the year. It has also had an increase in gross revenue, 180% compared to 2019. So I guess the high sales. So a big driver of the traffic was, Work schedule flexibility. We used to have a lunchtime bump and a post-work bump, which means, you know, really they only had to be open four hours a day, or an evening bump in sales. Now it's consistent throughout the day. So I think people have the flexibility of I'm going to log off for an hour and just take a mental health break and walk around downtown or something and then come back to work in the evening. We're seeing all hours. We're seeing foot traffic, which is really encouraging to see. Activated downtown, who knew? Uh, Bull said the store has always been, and of course there are a growing, I mean it's still paltry, but it's a growing number of people who actually live downtown. There are now actual housing units there. Yes, they are, you know, not, not for working class, but that means they have money to spend on you know, Etsy crafts. <laughs> anyway, and places like, uh, Fresh and Fly and what have you. Bull said the store has to, be open seven days a week in an effort to draw people downtown. But customers wanted to see longer hours on weekends too, so he added them. Does that mean he hired more people? Anyway, data from the service Placer.ai, which measures visits to a geographic area via smartphone use. Placer reports that 75% of downtown employees had returned during the first quarter of 2023 compared to the same period in 2020. According to figures shared by the downtown bid, those employees were averaging around four days a week in the office, 3.7. Some departments, it's half. Like you get um, pretty much half of your pay period uh, work from home. Others, it's like in state ed, um, it's three days per pay period every two weeks. Tracy Mentor operating volunteer for a volunteer at a, retail establishment at the Vandy thrift shop, it is a thrift shop I guess, but still it's labor should be paid. Uh 412 Broadway near the Fort Orange General Store said the thrift store recently had its best week to date. The shop which specializes in high-quality second-hand women's and men's clothing, yeah, okay, so high-end thrift shop, right? Brought in 150,000 during its first year. Now, of course is this um is this is it's is it is a net I guess that's fine. Whatever. It's a good amount. I mean, it can pay two salaries or so. All proceeds benefit the Vanderhanden, a non based in widened skill that serves 500 children who have development, emotional, or other behavioral needs. Okay. As most thrift stores do. I mostly want a free store, though. Mr. Said in thrifting, stores are a destination. She estimated that 75% of customers on Saturdays are coming from outside of downtown. Downtown office workers have become regulars. This goes from my friend's bookshop and a number of things in Center Square. We celebrated our first anniversary. I mean, we knocked it out of the park. Sales are triple, what they were typically were, and that's been a large part due to the community support to the promotion of the downtown bid. So, valuable partner, she says. For customers struggling to get to the store during the week, weekend hours were extended there too. Port Orange, The Vandy, and nearby bar and restaurant Lock & Quay Quay, are among businesses making a coordinated effort to make their block a destination. So these are all on the same block on Broadway. I think this is across from SUNY. So this is basically where all the buses start as well. Let's see. As shoppers come in, they're asking us where to go to lunch, and we're like right across the alley at Lock & Quay. And we've got a great menu for lunch and dinner, blah, blah, blah. Now, when is this news, and when is this basically an advertisement for a block, right? But I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. CyberBelly closed its pro-location in February, and moved. Uh, a move co-owner, Jennifer Novak, said is the result of shifts related to the pandemic, including smaller daytime populations downtown. Labor costs have also been a complication. Oh, oh really, complication. You mean they went up? You mean they had to pay more? Or rather... Um, uh, I interviewed to work there, and it was all about, like, you know, yeah, you're going to come in at, like, 5 a.m. and leave at noon, I guess. That's the work day. Ugh, stressful, man. I know, you got to go in and make the donuts, right? Mm. Um, the pandemic did shift the environment. We shifted with it, and because of that, we're seeing the results. I mean, the businesses that kind of are waiting for the downtown office workers to come back five days a week, unless they shift their strategy, they're not going to be successful. They're not going to make it. Unfortunately, or as successful well more business for them right so i think it's important for people to realize that if you're going to be successful you've got to change with the times oh boy (laughs) what great wisdom (laughs) uh obvious wisdom obviously controversial controversial controversially obvious okay um so what i'm going to cover is not cover again another biz albany biz article but this is an update on um, a project I talked about. I covered a few, you know, two, three months ago relating to a housing project. Again, that's more non-market than market, or it's a little, it's a bit of a fusion. And it is uh, at uh, Colvin, Colvin Ave, which definitely should have more housing on it. Because that's basically the, to me, the western boundary of town. That's where, like, the, the there should be, like, that Colvin Ave, could be as dense as Allen and Manning. Well, Manning isn't dense at all. That's the problem. Manning is like a suburban road winding through Albany. It needs to go, or it needs to become like a main transport strip. But anyway, Casino Group buys Albany property for controversial apartment complex. Why do you think it's co- Why do you think it's controversial? But let's let's let take a guess, listener. Why do you think this is controversial? Well, I would have I did if you if you're an avid listener. They may have to deal with that they're, they're going to actually house some <gasps> poor people and veterans at that. Okay. Affordable housing developer. So they, they're a mission-based, you know, affordable housing. They develop affordable housing outright. They don't need to be forced. Uh, it's pushing forward with plans. And, by the way, this article does something that it makes me actually take the developer side versus neighbors. That shouldn't be the case, but it, it, you know, you'll see. They're pushing forward with plans to build an apartment complex on Colvin Ave in Albany, a project, and this is near central, like right off, it's, uh, near the intersection there, a project that has generated fierce opposition from many neighbors. The Missouri-based company, or Missouri-based company, bought property at the rear of the former Armory Garage at 64 Colvin on March 29th. The same day, representatives hosted a open house nearby at Westgate, the diner, Westgate Diner, which... To tell you the truth, seems to get a little worse every time I go, but maybe that's just my perception getting older. Like as a kid, it's like, Oh, this is good. As a teen, I'm like, it's okay. Post college, it's like, eh. And now I'm like, do I, why am I here? I don't like this. (laughs) Or maybe because I'm only going on Sunday and it's just too busy or something. And I'm just like, this is not worth it. So Albany. Um, so I'm just letting you I'm just relating that I'm familiar. Albany is among the cities and towns in New York with a shortage of affordable quality apartments. The problem cuts across many demographic groups. Among med- veterans, there are 67 who are homeless and seeking emergency shelter in Albany, which is a 24% increase over the past two years. Yes, it is, in fact, getting worse. According, and this is according to Ficino Group. I don't know where they got those numbers but I can guess someone did the county. The plans for the roughly 60 million project feature a three-to-five-story building with 187 apartments, includes a fitness room, community room, space, whatever, with full kitchen and patio for about 250 residents. Okay, yeah, so 187 apartments that fit 250 people rents would be affordable to people who earn 50% to 80% of the area mean income so it goes you know you can have half of a mean income which is again that was 44,000 so you can you can make actually the poverty line you know and actually get afford this 57 units would be designated as supportive housing these are for the homeless veterans who are those and thus at risk of being homeless now it also depends there is a difference between those who are chronically homeless people who have been homeless for like years more in a year is how it's defined, and those who, in the past two years, are, like, in and out. Um, Like, like one month they're out, one month they're renting a place, or, you know, couch surfing, whatever. It depends, really much. And sometimes they're in a van down by the river, literally. About 100 people showed up during the three-hour open house in the back room at Westgate Diner. There are trays of the normal stuff and other de- with boards of renderings and details about the apartments. Residents sat at tables or clustered in small groups peppering Vecino officials with questions. Opposition and distrust of Vecino has been simmering for months among the leadership and members of the Upper Hudson Avenue Neighborhood Association. Which is interesting, considering this apartment building, I would say, is an upper central avenue. Not in, upper Hudson, not, not in Upper Washington. You have to walk, I mean, I guess it's four blocks from Central to Washington. So, uh, but Colvin Ave, that, that, that's the longest, basically, you know, bisector street. Allen Street has its own neighborhood association. So anyway, among the concerns, whether there will be adequate supervision of, of homeless veterans living in the apartments who may suffer from mental health problems, Or drug addictions, but that really depends. If they're chronically, they they mostly, they do, but that's what, like, I worked at a house of 30 people like that, and yes, there is supervision as far as I, we were there in eight-hour shifts, someone was there in the building doing chores or being a gopher, because it wasn't just, you know, single, it was single occupancy rooms, but like a shared kitchen, food was prepared for them, like, yeah, it was like a lot more, like, uh, support. It was supportive housing. This is it supportive housing, perhaps not. But again, if they were, if you've been homeless for a year, you just need housing. It's not you don't need a nursing home type atmosphere. Especially like you know you going into the VA, so you just need to take the bus um, and all this stuff like that. Um, and the DMV is just down the street, and you got the grocery. I mean, that we need there should be housing along Central Avenue because you have all of that stuff there, and half of it's parking lots. If it was all housing, you wouldn't need the parking lots. That's my pr- perspective. Um, among the concerns, yes, okay. The proximity of the apartments to Westland Hills Park is raising fears because children play there. Did you? I, I didn't know that. Children play where there are homeless people and poor. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> um, go live in Saratoga. They hate. They 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 know how to deal with the homeless there. They basically ban them from sitting. The Albany Housing Coalition, which works in conjunction with Stratton VA Medical Center, to assist veterans in. So, by the way, so they have a non. they made I don't know if Vicino Group is nonprofit. They're probably not, but they are working with a nonprofit, which basically gets the grants for them and pays for the stuff. So, the Albany Housing Coalition, which works in conjunction with Stratton VA Medical Center, assists veterans in the tri-city area, with supportive housing and other needs, has already secured an annual $1.4 million five-year grant from the state to help tenants of rent, case management, life skills, and services. So it sounds like there will be supportive. It is a type of supportive housing, maybe not as intense as what I worked at, but they also do say they will have a 24-hour presence, on-site presence. This is what the Sino group is saying. So you trust them? I don't know. Uh, but at this point, I'll, I'll trust them more than the average Buckingham Pond resident, because they're they're shady. Joseph uh, Soska, executive director of the Albany Housing Coalition, was among those at the open house answering questions. He's worked with homeless vets for 19 years and understands the need. Our program places probably 70 homeless vets a year into apartments, and then another 30 or 40 vets at risk of losing their housing. He winced at some of the statements he's heard regarding the possible threats. Believe are posed by certain veterans who may live at the apartment complex. A petition sponsored by the neighborhood association on Change.org has garnered 246 signatures, urging local elected officials to oppose the project. So they're they're they they're just in opposition. It's not just concerns, or they're asking questions. No, they just don't want it. They're nim- they're they're being nimby. Bruce Adib Yaziz. he's the vice piece. He's the vice president of Fasino Group who also attended the open house. He said the intent wasn't to change anybody's mind. His intent wasn't to change anybody's mind, but rather to provide information and talk directly to residents. So this is the VP of Vicino. There are several people who readily took in information and said, I'll take this back to the people I know. There are people who said, I don't care what you say. I'm not changing my mind. Vicino group might tweak the designs based on the feedback and expects to submit a site plan application to the planning board in a month. Let's skip ahead to the end with some details. The company signed a deed on March 29th to buy a three and a half acre parcel at 64 Calvin Ave, and this was filed with the clerk, county clerk. Seller was Albany Realty Partners. Don't need to know that. Supportive Housing Solutions Fund LLC, part of the Cooperation for Supportive Housing in Manhattan, provides two mortgages. Is providing mortgages for this building, which uh, is about five million. You know see so with housing like this you need a lot of different sources. i kind of covered this before. So now for the outro for the show. So that's this week's show. Please contact me, leave any feedback. Suggest topics or join me on the program. Please I'm very lonely. Use my socials on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon at What's Left in Albany slash three left show one or the other. Instagram I'm on Instagram at D Dan P L A A T. Though I don't post there, but you can you can send me a message, and you can go to www.3numeral3lefts.news, which contains the show notes, the archive of all episodes for both of my programs, which includes the other one is the Three Left Show, which is my leftist theory show where I discuss the strategies, practice of a left for itself. So otherwise, I want to wish all well. Encourage all listening to devote some time every week to a collective or community project as we discover what is actually left in all. jobless corps no work in the factories no more manufacturing all the tools are broken rusted every wheel and window busted through the city streets we go idle as a ceo idle as a ceo well one two three four join the marching jobless corps don't have to pay no rent sleeping in a camping tent do not start diving don't take money every bite we share with- let